Islam. Now, President Obama said this, unless we get on our, now this is in front of 2,500 Christian leaders, by the way, uh, Christian prayer breakfast. Unless we get on our high horse and think this is unique to some other place, remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. In our home country, slavery and Jim Crow all too often was justified in the name of Christ. Now, I shared with you last week that what he did there, he made a moral equivalency between Christianity's past and some of the things that Christians did wrong and equated them with this incredibly horrific Islamic jihad happening in our world today and that has happened all the way back to Muhammad he equated the two and said you Christian leaders you ought not be not be pointing fingers because your church history you did some of the same things well last week we talked about the crusades and if you weren't here to, to uh, listen to that you ought to grab the cd they sold out, they couldn't make enough CDs, and they sold some the next morning. They went like hotcakes because we need to be informed so we can answer things like this and not just be at the mercy of these more intellectually inclined arguments. So let's pray together. And tonight we're going to look at the Inquisition and slavery. Father, I pray tonight that you will inform your people. You told us to always be ready to give an answer. That's in your Bible, Lord. So I pray that tonight you will help us to be armed to give an answer to this that President Obama said and what many others are saying against the church. And Lord, we thank you for the truth. May the counselor, the spirit of God be with us tonight. And illuminate us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your neighbor and tell them it's going to be good tonight. It's going to be good tonight. We're going to learn tonight. Amen. All right. Um, let's look at the Inquisition. How many of you do not know what the Inquisition was? How many? Raise your hand if you don't. Want, if you if you really don't know what it was. All right. You've heard of it. But you're not totally clear. Let me see the hands on that. We've all heard of the Inquisition. And of course, we've got Hollywood movies on it, which are never true. So <laughs> let's, uh, let's look at this. Now, I am going to go into history. You're going to have to pay attention and soak it up because this is just church history. All right? Now, the Inquisition was a group of institutions within the judicial system of the Roman Catholic Church whose aim was to combat heresy. Or so they said. It started, the Inquisition began in the 12th century France to combat cultic teaching. And there was some cultic teaching and others, uh, and, and other uh, instances, it was just people who did not adhere to Roman Catholic doctrine and they were considered heretics. But the primary aim of the Inquisitions when they began was to answer what they considered heresy. Now, before we go further, I've got to go back into the birth of the Roman Catholic Church to understand how the church got into the place where one man could order the torture and execution of people. 
um, representing Jesus and representing the church. So you can't talk about the Inquisition without talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not here to slam any church. This is known out there for anybody to go find it, church history. Okay? So let's go back in a little bit of the Roman Catholic Church history. Catholic tradition holds that the Catholic Church was founded by Jesus Christ. They point to the New Testament records which document Jesus' activities and teaching. That, of course, the New Testament does that. And his appointment of the 12 apostles and his instructions to them to continue his work. That's the gist of the New Testament. Now, um, the Catholic Church teaches that the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost signaled the beginning of the public ministry of the church. And that's true. That's true. Uh, we teach that the day of Pentecost was the church's birthday. That's the day the church was born, when the Spirit of God was poured out. Now they further teach, and here's where they go in a direction we don't. They further teach that Peter was Rome's first bishop. Now follow carefully. Peter was Rome's first bishop and the consecrator of a man named Linus as its next bishop. In other words, they say that Peter ordained this Linus individual who became the, the, essentially the second pope. Thus starting the line which includes the current pontiff, Pope Francis. Now they used the scripture where Jesus said to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. You know the story. Peter, who, Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say Elijah, some say this, some say that. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And you know what Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus lit up and he said, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father was in, who is in heaven. And I tell you that upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now the Catholic church teaches that the rock was Peter. Upon this rock, the man who said this, I will build my church. So their belief in Peter as the rock is called the Petrine succession. Now, let me tell you, we don't believe that it was Peter. It wasn't any man. It was the revelation that he had. It was the truth that he spoke. Upon this rock that you, are, you Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Upon that truth, that rock, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not successfully prevail against Jesus, the rock of the church. So it wasn't Peter. It was the revelation Peter had. But now the Roman Catholic Church to this day will tell you, no, it was Peter. It was Peter and it was not the revelation. And that's where the Protestant church and the Catholic church part ways. Now the Catholic Church considers the Bishop of Rome the Pope to be the successor to St. Peter. Okay? Now the New Testament church structure consisting of plural presbyters or elders and bishops persisted in Rome until the mid-2nd century. In other words, for the first century and a half of the church, they were doing church government right. 
They had plural elders. There was not one man calling all the shots over all the churches. But there was plurality of elders, local elders, local leaders, local bishops. Everybody with me? So for the first century and a half of church history, this was the case. But something began to happen. Very important. It began to emerge that a single bishop with plural presbyters was accepted. You would have, uh, you would have a, a church in, in a particular town. And let's say there were five or six small towns around that town. And it, and it just kind of evolved that, that the, the, the lead uh, pastor, we would say today, the, the head bishop, would start not only making decisions for his own church, but for these other churches as well. And they began to accept him as their leader. And this spread and morphed and ballooned into the place where uh, finally a pope was adopted and accepted and received who oversaw the entire church, all the different churches. He was the lead man. Not plurality of leadership, singularity of leadership. This took time. It was very incremental. It took, uh, it took quite some time, many, many, many years. The power and influence of one single pope grew over time. When, when Leo III crowned Charlemagne in the year 800 AD, he established the precedent that in the West, watch this, everybody, this is so important. He established that no man would be emperor without being crowned by a pope. So no man could even be king unless the pope crowned him. So all of a sudden you got the church growing and morphing and ballooning into something Jesus never intended. You've got the church not only being a religious institution, but also a political institution. Where really the pope, for a time there, was ruling everything. Even as late as 1870, think about that, not too long ago, the proclamation of papal infallibility for rare occasions when the Pope speaks ex cathedra was made literally from the chair of St. Peter, and it said that the Pope can issue a formal definition of faith or morals, and guess what? Here's what it meant. He's inerrant. When the Pope makes a declaration, he's literally speaking as God, and he's inerrant. That's, that's what it became. Even now, boy, when Pope Francis speaks, it's like, ooh. And he's come off with some stuff, unbiblical stuff. I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody. Because I know many of you came out of the Catholic Church. You know what? Uh, there's many, many, many good people in the Catholic I'm not here to slam anybody. Or any institution, but I'm, I'm taking you back because it's so important understanding the Inquisition. Now, this level of power was never intended by the Lord. And this is how things reached the place that the Roman Pope could issue orders that heretics could be arrested, confined, tortured, or even killed in order to preserve Catholic doctrine. Wow. Are you with me? heavy stuff. How many of you have ever had an in-law you wish you could do that with? 
You just, you know, not kill, but little torture? Come on, believe like I do. I'm just kidding. Lighten up. Everybody's like, oh, did he really say that? Okay. I, I've had a wish or two with some relatives. Don't you want to say to people sometimes, really, can you be this blind and just give them a nice loving slap? Now see, now look, this is what, this is what the Catholic Church got to the place where it was so big, so powerful, even anointing kings, that they finally got to the place where they said, you don't agree with us, and we can make your life very difficult. Now let's move on. Beginning in the 1250s, inquisitors were chosen. Generally from members of the Dominican order, the Dominican order was a branch of the Roman Catholic Church, it was the inquisitor's job to question and punish possible heretics. Can you imagine a knock on your door and there's the inquisitor? And he says, I've heard that you said, and in light of that, I'm arresting you, I'm going to take you down, and we're going to have a talk and see if you can't come in line with Roman Catholic Church doctrine. Now, in the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance, so 14th century, the concept and scope of the Inquisition was significantly expanded in response to, uh uh-oh, the Protestant Reformation from which we came. The Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, he is so sick of what he's been seeing with this bloated, unbiblical, out-of-control Catholic church, he goes and he nails his 95 theses on the church door of Wittenberg and he starts the Protestant Reformation And now you've got Protestants and you've got Catholics. And, oh, that was the beginning of all kinds of trouble. And when Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation, and think Protestant, protestants, protesting something, protesting the the bloated unbiblical Catholic doctrine of that day, okay, Um, then then the, the Inquisition gained some steam because now we've got not just people teaching cultic teaching, but we've got this gigantic movement that is covering Europe called the Protestant Reformation. And so we've got to turn the screw. We have got to get tougher and really come down on this. So the Inquisition gained steam. The Inquisition's geographical scope was eventually expanded to other European countries, resulting in the worst of them all, the Spanish and the Portuguese Inquisitions. Now, Get this, when a suspect was convicted of unrepentant heresy, the inquisitorial tribunal was required by law to hand the person over to the secular authorities for final sentencing, for not believing like them. Now, do you notice tonight how honest I'm being about the church's history? I'm not trying to cover it up. I'm telling you this, this happened in history. But we're not done. So they would be turned over to the secular authorities for final sentencing. And the secular authorities would do what the church said. Lock them up. Imprison them. Sometimes execute them. The penalty would be determined by a magistrate depending on how heretical they decided the person had been. Now the possible punishments included, yes, death by burning. Although imprisonment for life or banishment would usually, usually be used. Now I've studied this. I've studied this a lot, and I'm going to tell you, the burning at the stake, that kind of thing that we see in all the Hollywood movies and all that stuff, was rare. It was not near as frequent as we've been told. 
But nevertheless, it happened. By 1256, inquisitors were given absolution if they used instruments of torture. That means they were given total uh, free gratis. You go do it. Torture. Now, amazingly, most inquisitors were friars who taught theology and or law in the universities. That blows me away. You're studying the Bible, then you go torture people. When Jesus said, go preach, he didn't say go kill. He said, go preach. They judged heresy along with church bishops, and they used the local secular authorities to establish a tribunal to prosecute heretics. After 1200, a grand inquisitor headed each inquisition. Grand inquisitions persisted until the mid, read this with me, the mid-19th century. The grand inquisitor was one of the most feared men on the planet in those days. If you had an inquisitor come to your door, you were in trouble. If the grand inquisitor showed up, you say goodbye and get right with God. Because it's over. Now, for the record, because I know what some of you are thinking. Where's the witch trials and all this? There were witch trials. Uh, that the church involved itself in. But again, i got to tell you, and I've studied this, I've read many different books on this. Let me tell you, the witch trials didn't happen near as much as historical revisionists who are against Christianity would like to tell us. It was an unfortunate interlude and quirk in church history. It was not common. But let me just go into it in a minute. The prosecution of witchcraft generally... Uh, became more prominent throughout the late medieval and Renaissance area. So, again, you're back in the 14th century. The witch trials were perhaps driven partly. Watch this. They, they looked for witches and, and, and prosecuted witches or so-called witches because of the upheavals of the era, era, like the Black Death, bubonic plague that swept Europe, and it wiped out a quarter of Europe. You know that about the bubonic plague, the Black Death? A quarter of Europe disappeared. Can you imagine if a plague hit the DFW area and one quarter of the population died? Can you imagine that? No, we can't. But that happened all across Europe. A fourth of Europe was lost to the plague. Now, uh, church leaders looked at this and they said, there's got to be a witch behind this. There's got to be something hocus pocus going on. Or this wouldn't be happening. This is bad stuff. This is like a curse. Who is putting spells on us? That was the thought. And the Hundred Years' War and a gradual cooling of the climate. Did you hear what I just said? A gradual cooling of the climate. They had global cooling. Global cooling. And did we survive it? I'm not going there which modern scientists today call the Little Ice Age, happened between the 15th and 19th centuries. Now, witches were sometimes blamed for these things. In the year 1484, for instance, one pope, Innocent VIII, called for drastic measures against magicians and witches in Germany. Now, I, I pulled this for a little bit of humor to lighten things up because just the title of this either is either a tract or a book. Put a grin on my face because it's ignorant. But here we go. One piece of historical writing from a religious leader of that time is entitled, here's one long title, How They, Witches, 
raise and stir up hailstorms and tempests and cause lightning to blast both men and beasts. It reads, now that's just the title. Here's a portion of the tract or the book. Therefore, he wrote, it is reasonable to conclude that just as easily as they raise hailstorms, that is witches, so can they cause lightning and storms at sea, and so no doubt at all remains on these points. Now, I'm the first to tell you right there, the church was wrong. Wrong. As already stated, the worst of all the Inquisitions were the Portuguese and the Spanish Inquisitions of the late Middle Ages. In some parts of Spain, towards the end of the 14th century, a wave of violent anti-Semitism broke out. Can anybody say with me there's nothing new under the sun? Because that's happening in our world as I speak. It's tragic, but it's true. Did you know that Benjamin Netanyahu just a few days ago, called for all Jews to flee Europe and go to Israel. It's become so dangerous for Jews to live in Europe now. Well, you talk about somebody that's carrying the weight of the world on them. That's Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel. Now, um, a wave of violent anti-Semitism broke out in the 14th century. Encouraged by the preaching of a man named Ferrand Martinez, you don't ever need to hear the name again. I just gave it to you. Hundreds of Jews, because of his anti-Semitic preaching, hundreds of Jews were killed as a result. The local synagogue was completely destroyed. The number of Jews killed was also high in other cities like Cordoba, Valencia, and uh, Barcelona. One of the consequences of these widespread killings was the mass conversion of thousands of surviving Jews to Catholicism, but not because they believed, because they wanted to live. I believe, I believe, I believe. They did it to save their own lives, thousands of them. Now, during this time, King Ferdinand II and Queen Isabella I, you know those names, don't you? The same duo that blessed and financed Christopher Columbus established the Spanish Inquisition in 1478. In contrast to the previous inquisitions, it operated completely under royal Christian authority and was staffed by clergy of all people. It operated in Spain, all Spanish colonies and territories. It primarily targeted the forced converts from Islam and from Judaism. Now again, I want you to take note how honest I'm being about church history. I'm not trying to hide anything. Not trying to embellish church history. As the Bible tells the truth about the people in it, I'm telling the truth here about this season in church history. Now, they targeted the Jews and the Muslims because they didn't believe the reality of their conversion. So they would arrest them and question them and put the inquisitors on them to see if they really believe what they said. Both groups came under suspicion of either continuing to adhere to their old religion or of having fallen back into it, and they were just putting on a show. In 1492, can you believe that? The same year as the discovery of America, all Jews who had not converted were expelled from Spain, and those who remained became subject to the dreaded Spanish Inquisition. You know that a lot of those Jews that had to flee Spain came to America? 
Did you know that? They were kicked out of Spain and came to the new land. Now, here we go. Let's talk reality. Was the Inquisition wrong? Everybody say? Sure it was wrong. It was wrong-headed. You know what it was? It wasn't biblical. Now, here's the point that I want to make. This is very important. Jesus never called his church to force people into converting through violence or physical threat of any kind. In other words, these people that were doing this could not point to any teaching of Jesus saying, there's where I read it in the Bible, so that's why I'm doing it. Very important there. They deviated from the teachings of the founder of the Christian faith, Jesus Christ. They had to, to do what they did. So the Inquisition was a total departure from the very clear and obvious teaching of Scripture. But I want to look at some numbers and see if President Obama's moral equivalency of Christianity to Islamic Jihad holds true. Because he said, hey, all of you, you know, 2,500 of you, you Christian leaders, you ought not get on your high horse and point a finger at Islam because your history is just as bad. Moral equivalency. Is it true? Beginning in the 19th century, historians have gradually compiled statistics drawn from the surviving court records from which estimates have been calculated by adjusting the recorded number of convictions by the average rate of document loss for each time period. One estimate is that the total number of people put on trial by inquisitorial courts throughout the entire history of Christianity was 150,000. That's the history of the Inquisition, 150,000, of which about 3,000 were executed. About 2% of the number of people put on trial. Now, I'm not saying, well, gee, because it was only 3,000, we're all cool. We ought not have a problem. It was wrong, but I'm showing you something here. So 3,000 executed the history of the Inquisition, about 2% of the number of people put on trial. Another group studied the records of the Spanish Inquisition, and they listed 44,674 cases, of which 826 resulted in executions in person and 778 in effigy. And that means that a straw dummy was burned in place of the person. So somewhere there was somebody wiping a relieved brow that straw was burning in their place. But notice... 826. One more historian estimated there were 1,000 executions between 1530 and 1630, a whole century. So catch that. In a whole century, 1,000 executions between 1530 to 1630 and 250 executions in the next century, 1630 to 1730. Now, again, all of them were wrong, but follow me. Stay with me now. While even one death over the issue of heresy is tragic, nobody should be killed because they're a heretic. Nobody. These numbers clearly reveal that they don't come even remotely close to the massive number of deaths perpetrated in the name of Islamic Jihad. Watch this. Furthermore, 
both the Crusades and the Inquisitions came and went as unfortunate interludes in an otherwise noble and beneficial Christian history. These were dark times when the church simply departed from the Bible. Any time you depart from the Bible, you're in trouble. Look at our nation right now. You depart from the Bible, you let darkness in. You have opened the lid for Satan to flood in when you depart from the Word of God. So when the church departed, they did things that were not biblical. Okay? Now, most importantly of all, any violence perpetrated by somebody claiming to act in the name of Christ went directly against the teachings of our founder, Jesus Christ. He never said to do any of this. Jesus was a peace-loving, compassionate, nonviolent man who commanded his disciples to put down their swords and love their enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those that hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. That you, you, you uh, may be called the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, big deal. Everybody loves those who love them. So Jesus clearly taught his followers non-violence. Can I have an amen? amen? So when the church went off into this, the church erred. On the other hand, the followers of Islam who persecuted, threatened, maimed, and killed, leaving a trail of violence and bloodshed across the face of history up to this very day, I could say this very week, could easily place the blame for their violence on the teachings of the founder of Islam, Muhammad, who commanded such things. I've read you the verses out of the Quran, commanding people. Again today, President Obama comes out and he says, <clears throat> we are not in a war with Islam. We're in a war with people who have hijacked Islam. Now, respectfully, he says that in defiance of all history. plus the writings of the Quran that calls all of us infidels and particularly advises the persecution and murder of Christians and Jews. Why do you think this is happening in Iraq? Why in Egypt? Why around the Middle East? Why is all this happening? And why is it going to come here? Because they have been commanded to now, do all of them adhere to it? No, a minority do. Those, those verses. But a minority comes to millions. When one thinks of mass murder, you think Hitler. I tell you, what mass murder do you know about? You'd say, oh, Hitler. Six million Jews. That's what you would say. Six million Jews in the Holocaust. Um, then you might say Stalin or Mayo, any of those who were involved in, in millions of, uh, killing millions of people. We would think that. But historians credit these 20th century totalitarians as being the worst species of tyranny to have ever arisen, and they're wrong. The stark truth is that Islam has killed more than any of these and likely surpasses all of them combined in numbers and cruelty. If you go back to the beginning um, when Muhammad was in Medina and then went back to Mecca with an army and took Mecca 
And from there, Islam spread throughout the entire Middle East and, and it spread like wildfire. And they did it all by the sword. Starting there and moving forward, millions upon millions and millions upon millions have been killed by jihad. Mike Conrad writes in the American Thinker, quote, the enormity of the slaughters of the religion of peace, and that's in quotes for our radio listeners, are so far beyond comprehension that even honest historians overlook the scale. When one looks beyond our myopic focus, Islam is the greatest killing machine in the history of mankind, bar none. Quoted from the American thinker. It's not my quote. Mike Conrad. Now, before we go to slavery, let me just, let me just close with this. I believe that our world is experiencing the increasing growth uh, of the possibility of a worldwide jihad. I believe if there was ever a time that the West needs to take seriously the spread of ISIS, the spread of Al-Qaeda, who are one and the same, this, this um, uh, calling people from all over the globe, Westerners are going and joining them by the boatloads. It's filled with psychopaths, sociopaths, uh, malcontents, discontents, people who are looking for a purpose and a meaning. And it, it's growing. And for our country to ignore it or not even be able to define it is insanity because it's coming. If you think it's not already in our country, you're sadly mistaken. We know there are terror cells in our country. So am I saying this to make you afraid or terrorize you? Not in any way. I know in whom I have believed. And I persuade he's able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. But at the same token, we're not supposed to just throw up our hands and, and go fatalistic with this and say, well, we can't stop it because the Bible said it's only going to get worse in the last days. So just buckle up your seatbelt, Christian friend, and get ready because it's going to get rough. No, we ought to fight. That, now, you say, well, that's a contradiction to what you've been saying. No, there is nothing wrong with protecting your country. There's not. Now, without going into a bunch of teaching on government, look at Romans 13, 1 and following, and it will show you that God establishes authority everywhere. And every nation has its own authority. And he says you ought to be afraid of the authority because the authority is there to execute justice. And if you do what is right, you have nothing to be afraid of. But if you do wrong, you should be afraid because the authority that God has established doesn't bear the sword in vain. So that's a whole other teaching on a country's right to defend itself. But trust me, when it comes to a country defending itself, Jesus did not mean for us just to turn the other cheek to something like ISIS and say, yeah, come slaughter us. No, that's not what he taught. But I must move on. We need to be in prayer, church. And let me tell you the two things quickly that will defeat radical Islam. A mighty military response and the gospel of Jesus Christ preached under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That'll stop Islam like nothing else. Now, let's go on to slavery. And I have less to deal with on this, but let me, let me talk about it for a minute. Because President Obama mentioned this. Jim Crow and slavery and blame Christians for being behind slavery. 
and the perpetuation of slavery. And that was just a, another little thing he, he kind of swatted the church about. Now, what is mostly absent whenever the Crusades, the Inquisition, and slavery are used as indictments of Christianity is any re- reference to the way Christianity also, please catch this, also ultimately brought about the dissolution of these very things. Let me explain. Slavery, for example, was outlawed in the U.S. in 1865, largely due to the influence of the Christian gospel. Did you know that? I wonder if President Obama knows that. Now, I'm not, just let me, I know I can get a whole bunch of amens if I want to. I don't want to. Just let me, let me share with you. British politician and Christian uh, William Wilberforce, you know the name, virtually single-handedly led the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. Why did he do it? He was so convicted by his Christianity that he gave his life to abolishing slavery. Years of frustration, years of resistance, Years of defiance on the part of the government. But he persevered. So deep was his conviction, and he got it from the New Testament. The Jim Crow laws, forcing segregation in the South, also mentioned by President Obama, ended officially over a half century ago due to the influence of Christian leaders. Yet, indentured servitude continues unabated today, almost exclusively among some Islamic groups in the Middle East and Africa. And let me just go on and say this, Muslim women remain the most enslaved. I cannot comprehend how a nation that was so high on feminism has even been remotely open to the spread of Islam because if you become a Muslim lady, you become a second-class citizen treated like bad. Why would anybody... Wearing these things where you can't even see the face? Commanding the woman around like she's a, a, a slave? Why would, why would American women want to embrace this? You former, or you current feminists, explain it to me. <laughs> Christian countries, in contrast, were the first to legally end the sin of the slave trade and the first to outlaw slavery's continuance. So despite its worst and most damning, uh, damning sins, Christianity has proven to be an indisputable, beneficial force throughout history. I'm going to read that again. You need to hear this. I'm so tired of Christianity being rammed and, and, and talked against and lied about when obviously people don't know what they're talking about and don't know history. If you look at history, listen, Christianity has proven to be an indisputable, beneficial force throughout history that has brought about unquestioned improvement of the human condition, Period. Nobody elevated women like Jesus. Every feminist ought to love Jesus because Jesus so elevated women. In closing, two questions come to mind. 
Here's the first one. Should your life be defined by your very worst moment? Come on, church. Should, how many of you have ever had a time in your life where you're not proud of yourself? Come on. You're not proud of yourself. Now, how would you like to be to have somebody come along and say, all right, I'm going to take this, this part of your life where you're not proud of yourself. You were not at your best. You did some things that you're not proud of. And say, I'm going to say, that is what's going to define all of you. How many of you would say, that's not fair? And two, do you think the world would be a better place had Christianity never existed? Oh, no. We wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be in this building. We'd be under some dictatorial tyranny. We would be enslaved. We would be in poverty. We would be miserable. We would have much shorter lifespans. We would not want to bring children into the world. You would have a very few people ruling the world and everybody else treated like dirt. I'll even add a third. Given that neither you as an individual nor the church as an institution is perfect, does that mean we or it, the church, are rendered ineligible to fight for just causes? No. How many of you in here have ever made a mistake you wish you could take back? Let me see. Now, do you think that Jesus looked at you and said, wow, well, because of that, you can't preach for me, teach for me, witness for me. You're out, dude. How many workers in the vineyard of God would there be? No. So because these unfortunate seasons in the history of the church, the, the Inquisition, in my opinion, worse than the Crusades, because they happen, does that disallow the church from being able to stand up for anything? No. Are we morally disqualified to get on our high horse in the face of children being buried alive by ISIS or homosexuals being thrown off roofs to their death or women being beheaded after having been raped? Are we disallowed from speaking to that, from rising up against that, from calling it what it is? No. Let's stand together, can we? Now, say with me, I think I understand better. The Crusades, the Inquisition, slavery. Now, say with me, thank God he's forgiven us for the church's mistakes but he's called us just like he called Simon Peter after his failure to stand up and speak up boldly for the name of Jesus and to take a stand for what is right. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Thank you, Lord.